Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Friends don't let friends pay full price for furniture. And guess what? We're friends. We are STR besties. And that is why I'm not going to let you jump off of this podcast episode without joining Minoan. Minoan is a 100% free service for hosts to use that allows you to shop from your favorite furniture brands, the ones that are always on your wish list, always on your mood board, but you think that they're out of price, Pottery Barn, Crate and Barrel, Parachute Linens. Yeah, those ones. Guess what? You can shop those at 30, 40, 50, even 60% off with Minoan, which again is a completely free service to use. All you have to do is shop on your favorite websites, install the Minoan Chrome extension before you do, and anytime that you are on a partnered website of Minoan, you will see the little Chrome extension pop up. That means that you can get discounts on that furniture. Instead of adding it to cart on the Pottery Barn site, Add it to cart on your Minoan dashboard, request a quote, and see those discounts roll in. If you're sitting there and you're like, okay, Natalie, this sounds amazing, sounds too good to be true, but I don't know what to shop for. I don't know how to put a room together. I am not a designer, and I don't have a good eye for that. Fear not, because right now you can go to the Minoan dashboard and shop the Level Up Your Listing and Minoan Get the Look brand collaboration. This was Tatiana, Taylor Tate, and myself who went through and put together a completely done-for-you design featuring two bedrooms, a living room, a dining room, and an outdoor space all using products that you can get discounts on through Minoan. We took all of the guesswork out for you down to the quantity and the number of things that you need to order to fit your space. So go to the Minoan dashboard, you will see our banner image pop up and click on the Level Up Your Listing brand collaboration where you can get the look that we put together with some of our favorite pieces from our favorite brands that are currently trending right now so you know that your listing is going to look fabulous. Pick and choose whatever you want. You do not have to order from the entire collection that we put together, but it's a really good starting point if you are feeling lost on how to style your place. Tatiana and I had so much fun putting these looks together, so if you need a little bit of inspiration, go ahead to Minoan today at the link in my show notes so that you can go start shopping for yourself and check out that collaboration we did so you can get the look. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today we have our first time ever, third repeating guest to come back to the show. He's also the first time guest to ever have two appearances, and now he's getting his third before others have had two. So Ryan Bakey, welcome back for the third time. You're a series regular at this point, but you always have such good info to offer. And this time I wanted to have you on to 
talk about how to get into real estate without actually owning property. We're not talking about co-hosting or arbitrage. We are talking about passively investing in other people's projects. So Ryan Bakey, aka Learn Like a CPA, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here as always. Today, we're going to talk about how do you own real estate? How do you invest in real estate without owning it? And we're not talking about co-hosting and arbitrage. So we're talking about passive investing, right? So one of the things that strikes to me, I first heard this at the first inaugural SGR Wealth Conference, TJ Tajani let us off. And he said, in real estate, you need three different things. You need time, experience, and capital, but you don't necessarily need all three. So you might have the capital, let's say you're working a job, you have the capital, but you're too busy with your family and kids and softball. So you don't have the time and the experience to go invest, or you might be the person that has the time and the experience and they say, why do I need my own capital? Those two can marry together, right? In this combination of let one person invest the money and let the other people, the experts go and run off and make the money with that investment. And so the typical common thing that we've seen clients do, and I've personally been a part of these deals is where you'll have, you can, and you can structure it anyway, but typically you can have one person, let's say, bring the money. And then the other person is the one that's going to operate the property. So typically how that works is you'll have, you know, let's say Natalie, you, you said, Hey, Hey, Ryan, I have $50,000 that I want to invest, but I don't really want to do any work. I don't want to hunt down these deals. I don't want to talk to agents. I just want to hand my money over and give it to you and let you invest it. Right? So we'll, typically what we'll do is either 20 or 30% will be my take. So let's say we use that $50,000 to take down a quarter million dollar property. I'm going to be a 20% owner in the property. You're going to be an 80% owner of the property. And we could get into what does that look like? Title purposes. You want to make sure that both people are on the title, both people are on the loan. So you both have ownership. But in our contract that we have together, typically is what's called an operating agreement. It's going to specifically state out our responsibilities. So you know, my responsibility as the operator is going to be I'm in charge of furnishing it. I'm in charge of getting a guest or getting a tenant in there. I'm in charge of hawking down the deal. Your responsibilities are, well, number one, the initial cash contribution. But then after that, there's going to be some sort of payback schedule. And so that operating agreement is going to typically define what the payback schedule looks like. And most deals, the, the limited partner or the person that's investing the money is going to get a lot more money up front first before the operating partner even makes their makes some sort of money. Okay. So if you had them if you have money and you want to invest it in me, you can structure it that way. That's the typical, that's the simplest form of partnership that you can have is with another person who maybe has, again, like I said, that time and that experience to go out and invest, but they may not have the capital. Or even if they do have their own capital, a lot of times people figure out, and I'm kind of at the stage where it's why would I use my own money when I could use other people's money and use my gifts of my experience operating short-term rentals or clamping or RV projects? Why would I use my own money when I could borrow or use other people's money? One thing to think about too is, and this is why people ask, well, hey, if I'm just passively investing, I normally am not going to get as high of a return as if I was actively managing it. And that's 100% true. And the easiest way to think about it is you ever see those graphs where it's just the X and Y axis graph and it's there's a direct cor correlation between the amount of time that you want to spend and your return. Always going to be that way. So if you think about it, like time is X and return is Y. And more X equals more Y. So the more time that you're going to spend, generally, the higher the return. 
So that's why if you take down a deal, let's say Natalie, you took that 50 grand and you're like, I'm going to go furnish the rental. I'm going to buy the rental, furnish it and run it out. You might get 20% cash on cash return. But if you're like, hey, I'm going to take this 50 grand and I'm going to invest it with Ryan and he's going to go do all the work. Maybe now you're only down to 10 or 12% cash on cash return because you have a partner, me, right? And so you can always think about there's a again, X and Y access direct correlation between the amount of time that you want to spend and your return. Because I've had tons of people come to me where they're like, hey, I, I have the capital. I don't know if I want to invest it passively or if I want to actually do the work. And I always say, what are you looking for exactly? Typically, when people get into real estate, let's say you got a couple, both husband and wife working, and they buy their first short-term rental. Oftentimes, they will see the cash flow, the tax benefits, and they'll say, okay, let's pony up and let's do it again. Or if they have a really bad experience or let's say things just take too long and it takes too long to get running and maybe they have a they bought a property in Dustin, but they couldn't get it started before the spring break. So they didn't really make that much money. But they're like, hey, why we don't we still want to invest our money, but we don't want to go through the whole process again. That's another type of person that is probably a good fit for investing their money passively with somebody else. So it like I said, it really depends on what end of the spectrum? I'll tell you, for me, my time is better spent running my accounting firm and running my social media business and helping other people learn all this stuff than it is to me actually manage my properties. None of my properties besides my multifamily that I own in Chicago do I actually self-manage. I either have other partners, co-hosts, or people to manage it for us because my time, an hour of my time is better spent doing my business than it is managing my properties. Okay, I love this perspective because we previously had on the Carwells, Emily and Sarah, if you know them, and they were talking about how they are in the state of providing that sweat equity and they are looking for people to fund their projects. So I like getting your perspective, which is on the opposite side. You don't want to do any of the work. You just want to give the money up. So what for you as an investor are returns that are non-negotiable for you? What are things in terms of what percent of the property do you want to own? And I know this is different depending on... If an investor is more preoccupied with ownership versus cash flow, but I would just love to know from your perspective, what are your non-negotiables for investing in a project? Yeah, I think as a passive investor, assuming that I have equity, so I have equity and when the project does sell, I'm going to get my share of the gain. I'm looking as a passive investor, I'm looking for at least a 10% cash on cash return because 10% is typically what you can earn in the stock market. And I'm fine with earning 10% in real estate if I also have appreciation, tax benefits, and equity pay down because the real percentage of return is not just the 10% cash on cash, but it's all those other three factors. And in fact, I actually have a template. It's not for public release yet, but- When will that be available? Come on. But it shows the breakdown of, okay, here's your 50 grand invested. You have $5,000 cash, uh, cash on cash. You have appreciation, tax benefits, loan pay down. There's so much more that is in investing in a real estate but you have to figure out what is your why and why do you do it? We have some some clients of mine and some other investors where they're like, hey, I need, I want cash flow. That's a big, that's a big non-negotiable for me. So I'll take a hit on the equity and I'll drop my equity if that means I can boost my cash on cash. Okay. So if I could get 12% cash on cash as opposed to 10%, knowing that my equity portion is not going to be the same when we go to sell. Okay. There are some people that are hey, I'm in such a high tax bracket right now that I don't want to have more income. I'll take more equity on the back. We have a little survey that we give out to potential investors that want to invest passively. 
And we ask, what are your goals? Are you looking for tax benefits, cash flow, appreciation, or really just net worth equity building? And depending on where you're at with that is going to determine what type of investments do you want to get into. So for example, your typical multifamily or single family real estate is not going to have as as much appreciation as something like a short-term rental or a glamping or an RV project might have. And the reason, part of the reason is just economies of scale. Your short-term rental and your RV park, they're basically a business. So the more net operating income you can drive through them, the higher you can sell the property or the project for. And also in short-term rentals and RV campground glamping, there's more tax benefits in those than there is in single family or multifamily homes. So that's why it all depends on what do you want as an investor? What is your most important piece there? Is it, do you want the cash flow to be able to quit your job and do spend more time with kids? Or, hey, I'm really comfortable with my job, but I'm really looking at an equity net worth boost here. I'll take a hit on the cash on cash if that means I have more. Okay, gotcha. When it comes to you asking for a 10% return, what's the schedule that you like to be paid back? I know you mentioned typically whoever puts up the money gets paid first before the operator, but is there is this just up to yeah. you and the operator to outline those terms? If you want to be paid everything back within, I don't know, five years or you're fine with 10 years or even less than that, like how do you determine all of these? Yeah, that's and that's like, Really what's cool about it is there's not a set restriction on what the payback is, what it looks like. It's all defined in the operating agreement that you draft up with that other party. So I'm in a particular deal right now where I invested $100,000 capital up front. And within three years, I'm going to get paid back my $100,000 plus my interest or my cash on cash. So the way that it looks like is after year one, I'm going to get 40000 of my hundred grand back plus an extra 10 grand for interest, right? And then in year two, I'm going to get another 40 grand of my 100 grand back plus $8,000 in interest. And then year three, I'm going to get my remaining 20 grand back plus interest. So that's a form of structure of return on capital or payback of capital plus interest. There, It could be a balloon note where it's, hey, instead of getting return on capital every year and interest, I only get return on interest and then I get my capital back after year three, assuming mm-hmm. I get, so you could go both ways. Okay. I could either get return on capital each year and then just a very smaller amounts of interest, or I could get no return on capital until the very end and higher amounts of interest. What is more important to me personally, I'm a student of accounting and finance and I understand the velocity of money. So when I invest money, I want to get it out as quick as possible so I can go and put it into more deals. Right. Because there's three important factors that, real estate really amplifies in order to become super, like really wealthy is, is debt, right? Debt and leverage. Debt equals leverage. So the ability to put a down payment on something, borrow at 80% loan to value, and that asset, I'm going to get the same amount of appreciation, whether I put 10, 20, 30% down, doesn't matter. I still get the same amount of appreciation. Mm-hmm. And that's the same argument that I make with a lot of people where they're like, Hey, I got this house. It's fully paid off. It's this rental property. I don't know what to do with it. But if you go to the Learn Like a CPA show, I think it, December 10th was the episode, but I basically talk about return on equity. If you have a paid off, I was talking to a couple the other day, $400,000 equity in a rental property in Arizona that's only making them 10 grand net per year. They would have to rent that property out for 40 years just to break even on the amount of equity that they have mm-hmm. in the long-term rental. So then the question is, can you take that $400,000 of equity and invest it in assets that will return you a percentage quicker than 40 years? The answer is, of course, yes. Right? So debt and leverage is super important. Taxes is another important thing. You get the same tax 
benefits, whether or not you put 10% or 20% down on a property. And that's super okay. important, right? Whether you buy a property all in cash or you put 10% down, you get the same depreciation. And so generally, the less money you put down, of course, the higher your total return is going to be because appreciation and tax benefits don't change based on how much money you put down. I would say debt, taxes, and inflation is what you have to understand. Okay. If, and this is just because I've studied accounting and finance and I've studied like super rich and wealthy people and like what they've done and like Rockefeller and all the people that are in real estate, what they've done is they've taken advantage of those three things, debt, taxes, and inflation, basically. Um, and because you have to understand, hey, if I have $100,000 in the bank and let's say that's disposable and I can invest that, I'm actually losing money by keeping it in the bank account yeah. because inflation is eating seven, six, seven percent. If I don't invest that at a 10 or 12 percent return, I'm literally losing money. Now, I'm not saying go, go invest all your money. <laughs> yeah. But if you have you have your six months of emergency fund that I talk about, six, nine months of expenses. Oh, you're having a kid soon. Probably want to beef that up an extra three months just in case. If you're at a job where let's say you get laid off. How quickly can you find another job that's going to pay the same? If you have a very in-demand job, like a nurse or doctors, or whatever, and you can find a job by the end of the week, then you don't need to have your emergency fund that high, right? But if you have a job where it's, oh, it, especially like consulting right now, is a really hot topic. So a lot of the consulting firms are like laying off employees because the consulting firms, companies that they work for are not paying for consulting services anymore. They're in like recession mode. Okay. You teed up my next question because you're a CPA. So I want to talk about the tax benefits of this. Okay. Uh, there we go. Okay. Okay. No, this is good info. So you said you get the same depreciation, you get the same benefits, whether you put 10 or 20% down, but I'm curious how this works when you're working with partners. So if you come in as the passive investor and let's say that there's three people in the deal and you each get 33% of ownership in the home. How does that work then from a tax perspective? Do you only get 33% of the home's value that you can depreciate or? Yeah. Okay. Generally, okay. yeah. So generally that's how it would work. If there's not an operating agreement, if there's an operating agreement that says we're 30% owners each, that's how the, that's how the tax benefits will, would play out. We would each get 30% of the benefit of the house. Okay. Now there, there are some more experience and more bigger deals where they actually allow you to do what's called a special operating agreement. And you typically will see this in small, like high net worth partnership families where you might have somebody that's retired and doesn't have a lot of income. They don't need the tax benefits because they don't have income in the first place. But you might have somebody who is in a super high tax bracket that needs all the tax benefits. Within your operating agreement, you can actually structure out. So let's say there's three partners, but one, one of those partners doesn't even need the depreciation. You can put in your operating agreement that the depreciation gets split between the two, uh, the three partners instead. Mm. Okay. So you can really customize this however you want that works for your needs, basically. Okay. Yeah. But that generally, if you don't outline something like that, it's going to be based upon your ownership interest. Okay. In deal. Yeah. Okay. So it'll just automatically default to the percentages. Mm -hmm. Got it. And I wanted to, before we go somewhere else. Yeah. So I wanted to explain to you how these passive losses work. Okay. Generally, if you have... Why you invest in real estate in the first place is because of how it's treated for tax purposes compared to like your W-2 income. For example, right away, any dollar you make in real estate, when I say real estate, rental real estate, that you rent out, whether that's through arbitrage or you actually own, it's considered passive income, which means you don't have to pay Social Security Medicare taxes. So if you're working at W-2, go look at your last pay stub and you'll see a line that says Social Security and you'll see a line that says Medicare. And typically, W-2 employees pay 7.65%. 
Well, you earn that money through real estate right off the top. You don't have to pay that 7 to 8% tax. But more importantly is passive income can be offset by passive losses. So we've done it myself or I've helped clients do it where they have a short-term rental, they buy a short-term rental year one. They use cost segregation, they accelerate, they take a huge loss from the short-term rental against their W-2. And now in the second year, it's, hey, um, now I have all this income coming in from the short-term rental. I don't have as much losses or expenses that I can make up because the property is performing really well for me now. What can I do? One of the things you can do is take those earnings that you would make from the short-term rental, invest them into a syndication or a passive investment, sorry, invest them into a, a general partnership or a passive rental investment, and you can use the depreciation from that passive investment to offset your short-term rental earnings. Okay, so you're like snowballing this effect of using it to avoid paying taxes on the previous project, basically. Yeah, when I spoke at Alex's webinar, like, almost two years ago, I based, I used the Bible analogy of robbing Peter to pay Paul, but it's, yeah, <laughs> let, let me give you an example, right? Yeah. So here's my situation. So let's say I'm in a 40% tax bracket and I have $50,000. Let's say I'm in a 40% tax bracket. I have a hundred thousand dollars of rental income coming in from my property, right? If I do nothing, I'm going to have to pay 40% to the government. I'm going to have $60,000 left, or I take that hundred thousand dollars that I made and I put it into a syndication or a passive investment, another property or a partnership that's going to give me another $100,000 of depreciation. Because okay. remember what I said is the money that you put in is not necessarily the tax benefits that you get. So if I invest $100,000, i am probably going to get like one hundred fifty or $200,000 of tax benefits. Back. Mm-hmm. Okay. So instead of, instead of taking that $100,000 of net income from the short-term rental and doing nothing with it and paying Uncle Sam 40%, I take the 100000 that I made and I invest it into a passive deal that's going to kick me back more depreciation. And then I just keep kicking that can down the road every year. It's almost like hot potato. It, you ever play hot potato? <laughs> yeah. Who actually gets, who gets burned? It's the person that holds the potato. It's, just, it's the same thing in real estate. If you hold on to the cash, you probably have a taxable benefit. You have a taxable gain if you hold on to the cash. But if you're making money, hiring people, buying properties and doing the things that the government like incentivizes you to do, you will never pay taxes. That is such a good analogy. Oh, my God, Ryan, you're a good teacher. I've been doing Thank this for so, so long. And I feel like that analogy is the first time that I, I get it. Like I, you just basically you do not want to hold on to your money like you need to be spending it. And so if you cannot come up with the projects fast enough on your own. You can't find the deals. You're too busy managing properties. Find someone else to invest it with because if you're stuck with it, you have that hot potato, you suffer that financial, that tax burden. That is such a good analogy. So I want to actually dive into this deeper. So let's keep rolling with this example where you make 100000 Let's say you're in a 40% tax bracket, right? So you might owe 40000 in taxes unless you do something with that money. So since you said you get the same depreciation benefits, whether you put 10 or 20% in a property, let's say you're trying to buy a property. I want to keep running with this example. Let's just say, so instead of taking that 40000 and paying it to taxes, you decide that you're going to put that as a down payment on something. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so can if we follow that train of thought, so you put that into, let's say you buy a $400,000 property and you're paying, you're putting 10% down and you're just putting that 40,000 into a property instead. So what would happen next? How do you get these, how do you actually get these tax benefits? Or if you go in with a partner to 
get that value, you would then have to what buy an eight hundred thousand dollar property in this scenario if you're going fifty fifty to get the full yeah. benefits. So the way the way that the math works is that you have a hundred thousand dollars of income, you need a hundred thousand dollars of depreciation to offset okay. the income. Right? Okay. So what I'm gonna do if I have a hundred thousand dollars of income, I'm first gonna look at how much depreciation do I still have left on that property. And I can do that by looking at my previous year's tax return. It'll tell you. It should be buried in there somewhere, I promise. And at that point, I need to figure out, okay, how much depreciation do I need? Let's say I need $100,000 of depreciation. You can do what I typically recommend people do is take whatever you need in depreciation and divide that by 20. So if you just did, if you did $100,000 divided by 20%, you would come up with $500,000. That's right around the amount that you would have to buy in order to offset Okay. The gain. So if I could buy, if I could buy a five hundred thousand dollar property, and I could put, let's say, I put ten percent down on that short term rental, I'm fifty thousand dollars out of my own money out to then offset my forty thousand dollar tax burden. Okay. So net at the end of the day, I just saved myself thirty thousand bucks by buying a, a property. Now I have a cash flowing asset, another cash flowing asset that's appreciating, debt pay down, and I just escaped the tax bill. Yes. No, this makes so much sense. And this is so good because, again, now if you find a partner, if you're in this position, right, where you need to spend money, otherwise you're paying it on taxes, you might as well put it to a property instead. So now this is, I think, that situation where if you have a W-2 and you're too busy to actually be finding these deals, go find somebody who's going to put in the sweat equity, as we call it, and you give them this money, right, so that you're good, you're offsetting your own taxes, but you don't actually have to put the work into finding these deals and operating everything. And then you yep. just keep snowballing that. This is great info. Okay. Next question I have, as a passive investor, how do you protect yourself? I know that you have this operating agreement, and I'm sure there's contracts that go into it. Are you forming an LLC with the other partners in the property? And then also, how do you ensure that you get paid back at the schedule that you like? What happens if the property does not perform as hoped who takes the hit on that financially do investors get paid out no matter what or is it always risky to be an investor yeah and so that's that's the that's the risk that you take as an equity partner okay so when you're loaning money you can either be an equity partner which means you share in the risk of that property not performing versus if you're maybe a debt partner let's say let's go back to our fifty thousand dollar example let's say Natalie, you say, hey, I'm going to loan you $50,000. I want a 10% rate of return on my 50000 bucks. So I would pay you back your fifty grand plus 10% interest. That's it. That's debt versus, hey, I'm going to give you this fifty grand with not really a guarantee of whether or not it's going to perform or not. So I would say as far as vetting like somebody who you're going to invest with, the track record it has to make sense. So are they? do they do this day in, day out? How many deals have they done before? What are some of the, how quickly have they returned other investors' capital? So typically like on fund projects, they'll have, they'll have the deal that they're trying to raise money for. And then at the bottom of it, they'll have, hey, here's five other successful deals that we've done in that area, just to kind of give you the track record of how we performed. So you want to look for that experience that somebody can actually perform and get you your money. Now, again, when you're an equity partner, a limited partner does have some protection and typically it's how the operating agreement is drafted, but debt investors always get paid out first. So in, in our case, let's say you lend me money for debt instead of equity, you actually can potentially get a lien on a property that I'm investing in. 
So you could say, hey, Ryan, I'm going to lend you $50,000. I want 10% interest. But I also want to take second lien on the property, which means like you'd get paid out before the bank gets paid out if the property was to go belly up, let's just say. Okay. So there are ways, as far as um, how you would hold your, let's say you're investing into a passive partnership, how you would hold your interest. I have a, I just have a single member LLC that I hold all my interest in. That's probably the easiest way that's considered like my holding company. And it all flows up to my personal return. And the reason why I do that is so then I don't have to give out my social security number to all the people that I'm investing with. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't trust them, but I just don't want my kids get sent and people still send. I see it all the time. Other accountants or people are still sending social security numbers through email, which I think is absolutely insane because email is not encrypted whatsoever. So I have a single member LLC that has a business EIN number. That single member LLC is owning all my interest in these partnerships. So that way, when I get my K-1, it has my EIN number instead of my social security. How have you found the partners whose projects you want to invest in? Is there like Facebook posts where people are like, I'm doing this cool deal and you get interested? Or has it all been personal relationships with people who approach you and you already have that established relationship? For me, it's all been personal relationships. So it's either been people that we've been talking for a while or we've been hanging out or going. So like this recent project that I'm working on is a husband and wife team from Chicago, actually. I met them at a retreat in Destin about five months ago. And now we're actually into a deal together. Because they're from Chicago and I trust their experience and their background and and what they can do. And so now we're teamed up to buy a property in Miami. Cool. Cool. Okay. So usually you're in talks with this stuff and then it's like you're meeting people that you're all on the same page and then somebody decides, hey, we're going to move forward with a project. Do you want to be the investor on this? Yeah. I think it goes back to what are you gifted at and what are the skill sets that you can bring to the table? In that particular deal... I'm not really looking to be the operator. I'm not looking to be the guy that's pointing fingers. I'm really just trying to like sit back and collect cash. I don't want to say that, but I'm I'm not really looking to run the deal, right? So I'll invest my capital there versus there might be some deals where it's like, hey, I have the time to do this. I don't really want to use any of my own money. Let me go borrow other people's money to then go do the deal. So I would say lean on your strong suits. What are you gifted at? What can you bring to the table? So like Natalie, you can bring your co-hosting experience and operating experience and hospitality And somebody else can bring the capital that, you know, or maybe you bring a little bit of the capital, but you're the one that's managing the property, so to speak, because your doctor friend that has the money doesn't have time to go manage a short-term rental. Sure. How involved do you like to be with these projects? I know we're using the term passive investor, but do you ever try to do monthly Zoom calls and check in? Operating going? Do you, I don't know, do you check? (laughs) Yeah, for me, it's think of it like a Super Bowl. And then, so basically the Super Bowl, right? You like, you train this all this time, you practice, you go through the playoffs and then there's a Super Bowl and you win the Super Bowl. And then you like might go visit the White House like a few weeks after you win the Super Bowl. That's exactly how it is for me. So I'm so like head down, focused, analyzing the deal, running comps, making sure the numbers make sense, raising the money, penciling it out, closing on the deal. There's the Super Bowl, which is the investor, typically like a quarterly investor call just to say how it's going and here's what our financials look like. Here's your quarterly earnings. Typically, we'll pay out distributions quarterly, let's just say. So think of it literally like the Super Bowl and then the White House. A lot of people that win the Super Bowl, they go to Disneyland. That's how I think about it. But I'm not not running the day-to-day operations, no. So when you get those quarterly distributions, back to this hot potato example, are you like using that money to fund your lifestyle or are you like, nope, we immediately put this in the, into the next thing because I don't want to 
hold this? Like, at what point do you decide, hey, here's money I actually need to live the lifestyle I want, and here's how much I need to just keep on kicking that can down the road to avoid the tax burden? That's good that you bring that up because, like I said, it all comes back to having a plan. So a lot of people, they run out of money. You ever hear they run out of money at the end of the month or like the month's over or the month's not over yet, but they run out of money. I think if you don't have that budget, that personal budget of, hey, I need five grand a month to live, you know, this is what I need. And I'm so intricate with it between my budget, paying my quarterly taxes, making sure that I have enough write-offs or making sure I have enough deductions to be able to offset my income, some of my income. I'm so in tune to that. So that way, before I even get the money, I already know where it's going. I already know, hey, if I come into twenty, thirty thousand dollars of cash, I need to invest that. Or it's, oh, I've already accounted for that. I can just hold on to it. I can use it to uh, go, go out to dinner or whatever I want to do with it. You have to have the plan. Every single dollar that you get, you want to have an assignment for. So that way, when you get it, you already know exactly where it's going. It's not a, it's not a, oh, we just came across five grand. Are we taking the kids to this trip? Or are we doing this? It's like you already have accounted for that within your budget. You're making me feel like shit right now. I do not have a Sorry. plan for every dollar. Oh my God. Okay. How do you figure this out where every dollar goes? How do you have a pre-plan for, do you work with a financial advisor or is this because this is your background in accounting and taxes that you just are so in tune with it? How does the average Joe out there start to make a, do- a plan for every single dollar that comes into their account? Yeah. So I think it first starts off with going, like looking at your bank statements, going back your last three bank statements and literally whether writing or going through an Excel, writing out everything that you spent and averaging those three. Because one month you might've spent $300 on going out to eat. The next month it might've been 500. The the other month it might've been 200. Average those three out. Groceries, right? Okay. 600 this month, 500 this month, whatever it is, average those out. And then put those in a spreadsheet and, and put percentages on those. Right. So if let's say I make six grand a month, my groceries are $600, 10% of my income is going to groceries. And you put those all in an Excel sheet and you can determine, okay, here's how much percent of my money is going to these things. This is what it actually needs to be. Hey, I need to stop going at eating out or going out is 22% of the the money that I'm bringing in. So generally, like when I was learning and teaching personal finance, you really want the amount of money that you spend on housing so including your mortgage, including utilities, and basically wrap it all together, be no more than about 30% of your monthly take-home pay. Because it gets really, because then you got, let's say, 8% your car payment, then you got credit cards, and you got all these things to add on top. It gets really hard to build wealth if more than 30% of your earnings are going towards your housing, right? Can you push to 40%? I've definitely advised people that have been able to do that. But you just have to know, hey, if I'm pushing my housing from 30 to 40, I need to cut back somewhere else. So maybe that... Maybe I can push 30 to 40, but I better not have a car payment or I better not have a large credit card debt. It starts with that personal, that budget to where if I have everything accounted for, any amount of money that I make extra, I already know exactly where it's going to go. Real estate, my business, or just to, to have fun. I recently just bought a car. So that was like the first nice thing that I've ever bought. And oh, I've been not like head down, grinded the last two years. And then oh. I finally like actually bought something for myself. What but kind I would of say, car? I got a Tesla. Oh, congrats. Yeah. I'm not even a car person, so I don't know. I mean, I was, but I know what a it, Tesla it, is. <laughs> in California, they're not that special. I went When I was in LA, when I saw you in LA, it was like everybody had a Tesla. Everybody has a Tesla, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's it's funny. like you guys just got a ton of money there in LA. But. 
I, I, I don't have a Tesla. Sh- I'm still driving my humble Mazda, okay? I would say something that's led to how I've been successful with money is I learned to manage money before I even had money. Mm. So it was like, okay, I learned when I was making 60 grand, I learned how to live off 40 grand a year. So then when I made 200, $400,000, I'm, I still learned how to live off 40 grand a year. I learned how to manage money before I even got it. And that's the same thing when I'm saying every dollar has an assignment before you even get it. And okay. And where did you learn this? This is your Dave Ramsey teachings or this? Is, I think so. Yeah. Okay. I did not learn that. And I feel yeah. as my wealth has increased, so has my spending. And I'm looking back and I'm just like, what am I doing? There's, I should have been more disciplined and stuff, but like money came in and I wanted to have fun with it. And now I feel like I need to go back and learn these skills. That's the thing that we talk about in personal finance, we call it lifestyle creep. And I see it all the time in short-term rental investors. Let's say you're, you get your short-term rental up and you're making three grand a month additional income and you want to quit your job one day, if you're taking that $3,000 that you're making on your rental property and half of it's going to your travel budget or you're not actually reinvesting that into yourself, you start to fall into that lifestyle creep. You'll never get out of your job because as your income increases, so do your spending yep. habits. And that's, it's like a hamster in the wheel. You like, you get a little water and then you keep going and you tire yourself out again and then you need a little bit more water. It's just, yeah. If you don't have that budget, you'll just become a hamster in the wheel. So on that note, and this might be my last question, how did you decide that the Tesla, that was the time to splurge? You've been grinding for so long and you've been living off of a $40,000 lifestyle. How did you decide I'm ready? Like I'm going to invest in myself and give myself a little bit of fun money back. Yeah. And I think it was because you should have seen the car that I was driving before. It was (laughs) out of necessity. Yeah, it was a true, I wouldn't say it was a true beater, but it got up to 130,000 miles on it. And every other week it was, something was wrong with it. Actually, I was coming back from an event. I can't remember. I think I was in Miami or I was in Miami, I think. And the serpentine belt snapped and the car, basically the alternator, the battery basically died on the middle of the freaking highway. Or some, something happened where I wasn't able to turn the steering wheel because I think the power steering went out. Oh, my God. And so I had to slowly drift across, like, traffic to get over. And luckily, it was, like, late at night, so there wasn't too much traffic. But my fiance said, yeah, you literally probably could have killed yourself. I think it's time to get a new car. Okay. So, so that was when you decided. When yeah. it was a life or death, a matter of life and death, that's when you finally splurged and treated yourself. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. <laughs> Okay, Ryan. Okay, actually, this is my last question. Do you have any templates or any resources? You seem so in tune with your budgeting and stuff. Is there anything you can share? And if you don't have it, can you make something and sell it? Please, I will be your first customer. Please. Everything you've said, like, I need your help. I need your resources. Yeah, I I got it. So if you go to learnlikeacpa.com and then you go to free tools, I have like more real estate specific templates, how to analyze a short-term rental, okay. uh, how to make sure it's profitable. I don't have any personal budget templates, but I would be happy to make one and share it. So. Get to work on that. Get to work on okay. that. Don't make it a free resource. We will pay for that. This is such good info. If you want to give me an affiliate link, I will not say no to okay. that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan, for your third appearance on No Vacancy, the podcast. And I guess we'll see you on number four whenever that happens. I'm ready. (laughs) Bye. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, I have to share a post that I found on a hosting Facebook group as per usual. And as soon as I read this, it instantly reminded me of this scene from How I Met Your Mother, which is... One of my all-time favorite shows. I miss it so much, and I just felt so nostalgic, but also 
extremely concerned about what is going on here. So let me read you the post, and then we're going to play this clip from How I Met Your Mother that I instantly thought of, and you tell me if you guys are getting the same vibes, okay? So here we go. This host posted, I ended up declining this guest because I felt really uncomfortable with it. Was that a good idea or not? And here is a screenshot they attached of the message from their guest. Hi, so a little TMI, but I'm using this as an emergency meditation for myself, releasing some pent up stuff. Is there any chance of people nearby? I ask because I know I don't want to disturb them because I will be crying pretty loudly at some points. Basically, I just want to make sure I can make as much noise as I can without being heard. Is there anything I need to worry about? And the host responded and said, this message makes me uncomfortable and declined the reservation. So the host is asking us, what do you guys think? Was it a good idea to decline or not? And I'm going to play you now this clip from How I Met Your Mother that this instantly reminded me of. I want to design a house that celebrates the landscape without overpowering it. You know when Frank Lloyd Wright designed Falling Water in 1935? Yes, yes, that's all fine. I'm sure you'll do a great job. What I'm really worried about is the basement, specifically the laundry room. The laundry room? I require a laundry room of 15 feet by 15 feet. Stain-proof ceramic tile from floor to ceiling. I'm a man who likes to do his own laundry, and sometimes... It gets messy. Steel chains will dangle from the ceiling at a height of nine feet. And that is where my laundry bags will hang for three days and three nights before I clean them. One final concern. Soundproofing. I tend to make a lot of racket when I launder. I'll show you what I mean. I'm going to go to my laundry room. And you tell me if you can hear me. Tony, does something feel off about this guy? Yeah. Off the hook. (laughs) Bro, you were nailing this. You can't design a burger house. I know, murder. You can't design a burger house. There you have it. If you remember that scene from season four, episode 23, we can be best friends, but. Whether or not you remember that scene. Am I the only one picking up on these vibes? What What is this, you guys? I asked because I don't want to disturb them because I will be crying pretty loudly. How close are the closest neighbors? Basically, I just want to make sure I can make as much noise as I can without being heard. Is this something I need to worry about? What the F is happening? What is going on right now? What is this person planning to do? I didn't even tell you this detail earlier, but this person's inquiry was for a four-month stay from mid-April to mid-August. I am so concerned, and a lot of people would be listening to this and be like, hey, a four-month reservation. I would take it. A lot of the comments were like, hey, why'd you decline? I've been there before. I've had some rough patches. I've cried before. No. No. Instant murder, sketchy vibes. I don't know if that's just me. Decline. This host did the right thing. This is effing weird. I am extremely uncomfortable, and I am so glad that the host declined. This guest, I am so sorry, whatever they are going through, if this is genuine and they need an emergency meditation and plan on crying extremely loudly to the point they don't want neighbors to hear, if that's all true, I am very sorry for whatever they're going through. Get a therapist. Don't go book a four-month Airbnb. Just go to therapy. You are the Airbnb hole. This made me so uncomfortable and, yeah, instant murder vibes. Not down with this one one bit. 
And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.